Hello, knowledge seekers. In this episode of 20 Minute Books, we are delving into Talk by Elizabeth Stokoe. This enlightening work explores the science of conversation and takes us on an enlightening journey from chit-chat at the cafe to workplace discussions, demonstrating how much of our time is spent engaged in dialogue. Despite this, few of us truly understand the complexities that underpin our everyday conversations. Stokoe is not just an author, but also a distinguished professor of social interaction at Loughborough University. She is renowned for her unique method known as conversational analytic role play, or CALM, a technique that uses real-time conversations to pinpoint common conversational issues and patterns. Her wide-ranging expertise in conversation analysis has led her to consult on conversational strategy in fields as varied as hostage negotiation to speed dating. Talk breaks down the fundamental components and patterns of dialogues, revealing the underlying structures and strategies we use in our daily communication. This book is more than just an analysis. It's a blueprint, enabling readers to enhance their conversational abilities and listen more effectively. So, who should make time for talk? This book is perfect for anyone who's ever stumbled while expressing their thoughts or those who've been part of a communication breakdown. If you're someone eager to take your conversational skills to the next level, talk is the guide for you. Join us as we unravel the intriguing science behind our everyday discussions. Talk, the science of conversation. Introduction. Unravel the fascinating science that shapes our communication. It's incredible to realize that conversation is a form of tool, a versatile and potent instrument that we utilize every day. We harness the power of words to nurture relationships, articulate ideas, diffuse disagreements, engage in commerce, and solicit or provide assistance. The spectrum of emotions and responses we can stir with our words is boundless. We can propose, offer, convince, irritate, or exhilarate others. However, most of us are oblivious to how this tool operates or how to optimize it for desirable results. Here's where the expertise of conversation analysis plays a crucial role. Even though our conversations might seem arbitrary or spontaneous, an in-depth analysis demonstrates that they're usually dictated by identifiable structures and patterns. By identifying these patterns, we can unlock obscured meanings, foresee responses, steer clear of disputes, and even fine-tune our communication to influence the consequences of our interactions. So, let's journey into the captivating universe of conversation. Throughout this summary, you'll discover the minuscule word that can effectively transform a no into a yes in your queries, the actual significance of supposed filler words like so and um, and why imitating communicative roles doesn't lead to fruitful outcomes. Part 1. Unveiling predictable patterns in conversations through the art of turn-taking. The concept of taking turns might strike a chord with your kindergarten playground memories, but it's a fundamental tenet of fruitful conversation as well. Imagine a conversation as a collaborative project between you and your conversation partner. 
It could be a straightforward task, such as ordering a pizza, or a more formidable endeavor, such as requesting a promotion. No matter the nature of the project, both participants navigate towards its completion via a series of conversational turns. A conversational turn is a grammatically consistent piece of dialogue. Its conclusion is often signaled by nonverbal cues, such as fading off or using a downward inflection. As listeners, we gauge when the speaker's turn will terminate and when we should chime in. These turns typically organize themselves into pairs, known as adjacency pairs. The initial turn in this duo prompts an appropriate follow-up turn. For instance, a greeting invites a responding greeting, a question seeks an answer, and so on. In essence, conversation is a dance of turn-taking. While one person speaks, the other listens and waits for their cue. Though this might seem plainly evident, scrutinizing this process more closely reveals it as the root of several common conversational missteps. The conclusion of a turn poses potential pitfalls. Misinterpret the cues, and you risk interrupting your interlocutor, projecting the impression of disinterest. Sometimes the end of certain turns are feigned, structured to invite succinct responses. If a person wraps up their turn in the midst of a lengthy narrative, they're expecting an interjection akin to, really? Not an intrusive, long-winded anecdote of your own. Conversely, if you leap in prematurely, you earn the title of a first mover. This means you're not properly following the pattern of adjacency pairs, which could tarnish your conversational image. Consider an example. If you greet your neighbor with a good morning and they retort with a demand like, you need to control your dog's barking, they're a first mover. Their complaint may be valid, but by neglecting to respond to your greeting before progressing the conversation, their response comes across as discourteous and unjust. Mastering the intricate ballet of turn-taking may seem challenging at first glance, but once you have it down, it paves the way for fluid and harmonious conversations. Part 2. The Underestimated Significance of Commonplace Conversation Starters Whether you're catching up with your mother over the phone or making small talk with a taxi driver, most of your conversations will undoubtedly kick off with a simple greeting like, hey or hello, followed by an initial inquiry like what's up or how are you. This ritualistic conversation opener is such a deeply embedded pattern that it almost feels like second nature. But does that render it insignificant? Well, it's a yes and a no. On one hand, the initial inquiry can be seen as meaningless. It doesn't serve as an authentic quest for information. And your conversation partner isn't genuinely anticipating a heartfelt answer. If a colleague asks you, how are you? On a dreary Monday morning, your honest response might be, honestly, I'm drained, Nazim. I spent the whole weekend arguing with my girlfriend and I'm not thrilled about the week ahead. Although such a response is candid, it's utterly inappropriate. However, the lack of expectation for a detailed response doesn't strip the initial inquiry of its value. Suppose you retort to Nazim's, how are you, with, Nazim, where do you stand on those budget figures? By ignoring Nazim's question, you're not only responding inadequately to his conversational turn, but also disregarding his effort to establish rapport. While verbal exchanges like, how are you, and not too bad, thank you, might seem rote, they subtly express interest in the other party. Building rapport holds immense importance in service-oriented industries like retail, 
where it can prove pivotal for closing a sale. However, in these contexts, initial inquiries often backfire. In many service scenarios, asking how are you can leave a profoundly negative impression. It feels rehearsed and scripted, particularly when it's echoed out of turn, such as in response to a customer query, do you have these boots in size nine with a disjointed, how are you today? There's a simple hack for salespeople to employ the how are you tactic convincingly, and that's to use it out of order. Consider walking up to a hotel receptionist with a request to switch rooms. He responds, let me check the availability in our system, and then casually asks, how are you today, while typing? This creates the impression that his question is spontaneous and sincere. Even though initial inquiries may seem redundant at a superficial level, neglecting or misusing them might lead to negative impressions. So, their significance shouldn't be undervalued. Part 3. Understanding the silent language of pauses and fillers can reveal hidden thoughts. When reading a book, we're often advised to read between the lines. The unsaid words can be just as telling, if not more, than the ones explicitly written. The same principle applies to spoken language as well. The pauses and filler words like so, um, and oh can convey as much meaning as the phrases they punctuate. Let's commence by debunking a common misconception regarding conversational pauses. People frequently assume that when someone takes a pause before replying, they're processing the information they've received. It's believed they're hunting for the apt word or contemplating their response. However, conversation analysts argue this is seldom the case. Most of our mental processing happens while the other person is speaking, allowing conversations to progress swiftly. In reality, a pause typically signals impending difficulty. It implies the speaker is about to deliver an undesirable response. For an invitation like, would you like to join us for dinner on Friday night? The favored response is, quite predictably, yes. A pause reliably indicates that the speaker is preparing to give the less preferred no. Similar to the pause, um can presage an unfavorable reply. But we often use filler words like um, ah, or er when we are confronted with unanticipated information or when the conversation takes a surprising turn. If your conversation partner's smooth speech suddenly stumbles into a series of ums and ahs, it's unlikely she's grappling for words. More often than not, she's signaling that the dialogue isn't progressing as she had anticipated. So and oh are two more supposedly insignificant words that actually bear crucial messages. In fact, both mark important turning points in a conversation. We typically employ O to show that a fresh piece of information has been assimilated or grasped. A simple O often hints that your conversation partner has revised her understanding of the topic under discussion. Contrarily, so serves as a navigational beacon. When your partner starts a sentence with so, she's gearing up to address what she perceives to be the crux of your conversation. Consider, so, about that money you borrowed. Or, so, how about we catch a drink together sometime? The usage of so unveils what your partner is genuinely interested in discussing. So if the conversation takes a turn with so, make sure you're all ears. The silent language of pauses and filler words can indeed be very telling. This also holds for body language. 
a concept that we'll delve into next. Part 4. Movements are not always mightier than words. Have you ever come across the claim that 93% of communication consists of body language? This figure is frequently propagated, but is entirely false. The much-cited 93% originates from a 1971 research conducted by psychologist Albert Merabian. However, this study had a limited scope. It instructed listeners to assess a speaker's mood based on his articulation of just a single word. Mehrabian himself acknowledged that this statistic has been grossly misinterpreted outside the context of his initial study. Undeniably, body language and other nonverbal cues constitute a significant portion of our face-to-face interactions. We can even communicate effectively using our bodies alone, as anyone who's signaled for a drink in a packed pub or waved a goodbye through a glass window would agree. You've probably heard the old adage, actions speak louder than words. It's easy to subscribe to the idea that even if someone lies verbally, their body will involuntarily betray them. Some body language specialists even assign absolute meanings to specific gestures. They claim folded arms during a conversation denote anger, or a hand laid on your arm indicates flirtation. In truth, gestures can be as equivocal as words. Some are even deliberately designed to be ambiguous. The supposedly flirtatious hand on the arm, if you don't respond by showing interest, it can easily be written off as a friendly or even unintended touch. Here's the reality. If body language were so potent and interpretable, it would be an invaluable tool. We would bridge language divides using purely nonverbal cues. We would instantly spot lying politicians just by observing their nonverbal signals. However, we simply can't achieve such accuracy. So, how does body language fit into conversational analysis? In actuality, our communication method is multimodal, involving both verbal and nonverbal elements. We can share the story of a disastrous date with a friend while flagging down a taxi, utilizing a blend of speech and action. It's preferable to evaluate body language in the same multimodal context. Nonverbal signals like crossed arms or downcast eyes form a part of the conversational framework, not the whole structure. In the end, it appears actions don't echo louder than words, but the words we select can influence the actions and reactions we elicit. Discover how to employ your words to achieve your desired outcome in the upcoming summary. Part 5. Your choice of words can dictate others' reactions. Hotels commonly urge guests to reuse their towels with a note in the bathroom. However, signs requesting guests to reuse towels for environmental purposes tend to be ineffective. A more successful sign appeals to societal norms, stating something like, The majority of our guests opt to reuse their towels. Merely tweaking the wording of the sign can bring about a shift in the guest's behaviors. This scenario beautifully illustrates the concept of choice architecture, the strategy of framing the way choices are presented to individuals to achieve the desired response. You can easily weave choice architecture into your conversation toolbox. If your inquiries are consistently met with a no when you'd prefer a yes, you might just need to modify the choice architecture underlying your request. Even a small change in a single word can yield significant outcomes, as demonstrated by a 2007 American study. The study aimed to tackle a pervasive issue in the doctor-patient communication dynamic. 
Patients often visit doctors with more than one concern, but tend to hesitate in raising multiple issues in a single appointment. Consequently, they may leave their appointments feeling discontent or worse with untreated health concerns. Even when doctors pose the question, is there anything else I can assist you with today? Only 50% of patients raised another concern. It was the issue due to the patient's hesitation to discuss their health or did the design of the question play a part? Interestingly, when doctors asked, is there some other concern you'd like us to address? An impressive 90% of patients responded affirmatively. Both questions were closed-ended, inviting a yes or no response. So why did the second question elicit a far more positive reaction from patients? The answer lies in the usage of any versus some. The term any is negatively polarized, meaning we tend to use it more in negative contexts. I don't have any friends rather than I have some friends. Questions incorporating any are more likely to be answered with a no, which explains why any other business or any questions are frequently met with an uncomfortable silence. Queries with any lean toward a negative response and curtail further interaction, whereas those with some have a contrasting effect. Simply swapping any with some might be all you need to transform a negative response into a positive one. Stay tuned to the next segment where we'll delve deeper into the power of questions, particularly how the nature of your inquiries can influence the service you receive. Part 6. The way you phrase your questions could shape the service you receive. Ask and you shall receive. But what you end up receiving might very well depend on how you framed your request. Daily, we utilize conversation to seek and offer help to access and dispense services. And it's precisely this medium of speech that can hold the key to improving our service experiences. Generally, we shy away from making direct requests. Asking for assistance can render us feeling exposed, while demanding our desires outright might seem too forward. Indeed, most people in routine conversations purposely avoid posing direct questions. Sometimes, we manage to acquire the service we need without explicitly asking for it. Instead of a direct question, we might make a statement like, I'm feeling hungry, expecting this to prompt an offer such as, there might be some leftover pizza in the fridge. When we do resort to questions, how we design them can give away how deserving we feel of the service we're soliciting. Consider a request like, could I schedule an appointment for tomorrow, please? It's straightforward and uses a basic modal verb to convey the request. It gives the impression that the speaker feels rightfully entitled to the service. On the other hand, a query like, I was wondering if I could possibly schedule an appointment for tomorrow, please, is indirect. The request is transmitted through a chain of apologetic phrases suggesting the speaker may be unsure about her entitlement to the service. So, what's the takeaway here? The more direct your question, the more entitlement you communicate, and the higher your chances of receiving the service you're seeking. Understanding how we ask or don't ask for the things we want can also help us provide better service. Direct requests can often cause unease. The fewer questions a client needs to ask within a service setting, the better. Hence, delivering exceptional service entails anticipating potential queries and addressing them proactively. It particularly involves discerning beyond the form of the question to its function. 
For instance, when a hotel bar guest asks if there is Wi-Fi available, she's actually masking several other inquiries within her primary question. Do you provide Wi-Fi? How can I connect to it? What's the password? Effective service anticipates the hidden requests within her original closed question and fulfills them. From making requests to extending offers, our next segment will explore some common hurdles we encounter when presenting and accepting proposals. Part 7. The intricate dance of making and accepting conversational proposals. Have you ever found yourself making a half-hearted proposition that was unexpectedly accepted by your discussion partner? or felt pushed into extending an offer you didn't genuinely wish to make? The act of making and accepting offers can be a tricky conversational dance. Let's explore how to navigate it. Gracefully accepting an offer often necessitates a thoughtful dialogue strategy. Suppose someone offers to treat you to a cup of coffee. It's perfectly acceptable to take them up on their offer. Just be sure not to do so too swiftly. Taking a moment to think before you accept demonstrates that you don't take their generosity for granted. For a more substantial offer, like a ride home, it's best to accept it in a series of quick conversational exchanges. If someone suggests driving you home, instead of accepting right away, use your next turn to confirm if their offer is sincere and not made out of sheer courtesy. You can do this by responding with something like, are you sure it won't inconvenience you? With this follow-up, you afford your conversation partner the opportunity to retract their offer. On the flip side, making offers can be just as complex. We often find ourselves compelled to propose doing things we don't actually want to. And when our reluctant offer is accepted, feelings of irritation and resentment creep in. Why do we make these unwilling offers to begin with? The answer might lie in the tactics of our recruiter. A recruiter, in this context, is a person who skillfully positions others through conversation to make an offer. There's nothing inherently wrong with this. However, frequent recruiters often prompt others to make offers by mentally cornering them. For example, a typical recruiter's request might be, we should arrange a time to discuss Allison's surprise party. This conversational proposition establishes an expectation. In this case, that a meeting is necessary, but leaves it up to the recruited party to carry it forward so the conversation's goal can be achieved. If you're dealing with a serial recruiter, tactfully shift the burden back onto them by gently steering them out of this conversational trap. Instead of responding with an offer, like, sure, how about we meet at my house next Saturday? Reply to the suggestion without pushing it further by saying something like, absolutely. Let me know when it suits you. Identifying the difficulties around extending and soliciting offers is half the battle. Once you're aware of them, they become significantly easier to evade. Part 8. The shortcomings of role-playing in communication and the need for real-time conversation analysis. If you've spent any time in a client-facing position, you're likely all too familiar with the cringe-inducing role-playing exercises designed to enhance corporate communication strategies. Picture this, you're awkwardly attempting to navigate a simulated conversation with your boss who is playing the part of an angry customer. But according to experts in conversation analysis, not only is this scenario uncomfortable, it's also counterproductive. 
Even though role-playing and simulations are often seen as staple tools in communication training, their effectiveness is questionable. The problem? They breed an artificial context for conversation. Recall the essence of a conversation. It's a collaborative endeavor where two or more people aim to complete a common goal through a succession of conversational turns. With this in mind, consider the contrasting nature of the project within a real customer service context versus a role-play scenario. In a genuine context, an employee's mission is to provide efficient and seamless service. However, within a role-play, the objectives change. It could be to complete a training exercise, to secure a promotion, or to impress a supervisor. In a genuine situation, the employee deploys her own conversational tools. In contrast, during a role play, she struggles to align her conversational turns with company policy or a predecided customer service script. In fact, when researchers in conversation analysis compared the dynamics of role played conversations with actual conversations, they noticed several crucial disparities in content and tone. Here are a couple of revealing findings from their research. Take, for instance, the context of police training, where role-playing the interrogation of suspects is a common practice. Often, investigators are prompted to ask open-ended questions such as, what were you doing on the day of your arrest? Written guidelines discourage them from asking close-ended questions during an interrogation. However, a close study of real-life interrogations showed that open questions could sometimes prompt answers that were either too broad or completely irrelevant. On the other hand, close-ended questions like, can you explain what happened before your arrest? Frequently elicited more pertinent information. In a different scenario, neonatal doctors are advised to convey recommendations to parents of prematurely born babies using phrases that imply it is in the best interest of the child. Intended to sound reassuring in practice, analysts discovered that this expression often obstructed the opportunity for further questions, sparking conflict between parents and medical professionals. By leaving out the phrase, it opened the door for parents and medical staff to delve deeper into the recommendations, making parents feel heard and thus preventing conflict. These examples illustrate that role-playing can yield misleading insights into workplace communication strategies. A more accurate depiction is provided by real-time conversation analysis. Final summary. Our conversations may flow organically, but that doesn't imply they occur haphazardly. Most of our dialogues consist of crucial elements and adhere to foreseeable patterns. Recognizing these conversational components and understanding their interplay is the optimal way to assess and enhance our communication skills. More importantly, this understanding equips us to avoid conversational traps that can lead to friction and misunderstanding. Thank you for joining me today on this journey of learning and discovery as we explored the insights of another thought-provoking book in our growing library of knowledge. If you've enjoyed our time together, please take a moment to follow our podcast, give us a five-star rating, and share 20-minute books with other knowledge seekers. Your support truly means a lot. Don't forget to join me again in the next episode, where we will delve into another enriching book. Until then, happy reading and happy listening.